you have what it takes to defeat the Steltic Drone? Do you even care about tracking down the Steltic Drone? Because you don't have to. Why? Well, let's find out with Privateer, this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity, or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 66 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. I'm your host, Joe, and I'm back with you once again to talk about a game from the Dawson Pre Windows XP gaming era. Uh, so I'm here. It's been a little while, and uh, and I'm back. Uh, things got a little busy for a bit, but we're here with, with the next show. Um, <laughs> I'm buried under snow today. A uh, bit of a, a winter storm, nothing crazy, uh, hit Toronto about, uh, I guess they're saying 30-ish centimeters of snow, which I guess is a foot. Yes, because a 30 centimeter ruler is the same as a one foot long 12 inch ruler. So uh, yeah, that much. It's, uh, you know, I, I worked from home today just to to avoid the, uh, the crappy drive, but uh, all is well. Everyone's safe. Everyone's happy. There's no snowmageddon. They didn't shut down Toronto. Uh, people just drove like fools. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> All that to say, uh, I'm home, so I didn't have to do a, a a commute home, shall we say? And um, you know, starting the show a little early, so that's good. I'll, I'll be able to get it out a bit earlier, and uh, and all that. So uh, I just wanted to take this opportunity to uh, to thank the guys for um, coming on the group hangout with us or with me <laughs> for uh, episode 65. That was a lot of fun. So thanks to Brian and Tomer and Trolls and Amy Riot Akago for uh, for chatting with me. And uh, we're going to do another one of those soon. And if you guys want to participate in uh, one of those group chats that uh, seem to be a ton of fun, uh, all you need to do is uh, give me five bucks or more per show on the Patreon. And um, that'll kind of get you into the running to, uh, to come on to the... Uh, Stuff like that, you know, the, the shows where I interact with, with you, the listener, such as it is. But, uh, yeah, just want to take that opportunity to thank the guys for doing that last time with me. And, uh, now we're back to, uh, our regularly scheduled program. And further to that, let's talk about some emails. So our first email is from Steve and Steve writes, hi, Joe. My name is Steve, and I live outside of Providence, Rhode Island. I've only been listening to the podcast for about five weeks, but a lengthy travel schedule this past past month has provided me with the time to listen to about half of your library so far. Needless to say, I am hooked. Anyway, I was recently listening to your episode about silent service. I have fond memories of old PC sub-simulators and really enjoyed hearing your thoughts about the game. Uh, For those of your listeners interested in DOS games within the genre... I wanted to recommend a game released by Electronic Arts in the late 1980s called 688 Attack Sub. I believe this was the first game to simulate a modern nuclear-powered submarine as opposed to a World War II-era boat. Personally, I think it's a bit more accessible than Silent Service, and the graphics and sound are also much better as well. However, for folks who are interested in the genre but generally don't have nostalgia for old games, I would have to recommend the Silent Hunter series by Ubisoft. Although there have been five games released in the series, uh, the third and fourth games are generally considered the best by fans of the genre. 
These are very fun and immersive games with impressive graphics and were built to run on modern hardware. In addition, the games have a devoted following and there is a very active community of modders that are uh, continually improving the game experience. I would point your listeners to the forums at subsim.com if they want more information about the game. Finally, in the notes for uh, to your Silent Service episode, you mentioned that the game was inspired by the novel Clear the Bridge by Richard O'Kane. After listening to the episode, I also picked up a copy of this book on my Kindle. I'm only about a quarter of the way through, but uh, so far I agree that it's an extremely interesting read. The first 50 pages or so, which describe the preliminary testing maneuvers uh, the boat and crew were required to complete prior to beginning their mission, were a bit slow. But once the sub gets out into the open water and begins hunting Japanese merchant ships, the story really picks up speed. Again, I haven't finished the book yet, so I can't offer an opinion on whether it stays this good throughout, but so far it's hard to put down. Anyway, keep up the great work on the podcast. Your show always brings up fond memories of my childhood, friends and I spending hours in front of a CRT monitor in my parents' kitchen playing old DOS games. These were experiences that I am so glad I had growing up, and your podcast allows me to relive them relive them a little bit. Cheers, Steve. Well, thank you, Steve. That's a great one. And uh, yeah, I'm actually getting a lot of mileage out of this, uh, out of the silent service show. I didn't realize uh, everyone loved sub games so much. I actually only have a memory of uh, one other sub game that I played called Wolfpack. I believe it was by Nova Logic. And I definitely remember it because it came in a, in a funky box. The box was like octagonal, so it didn't really fit on the shelf very well. Uh, I was very young when I got it. I think my brother got it for me. And, uh, you know, it was a little bit beyond me to kind of, I didn't really get the whole, like, you know, how you're supposed to use sonar and all of that. Uh, but I think, you know, now if I go back and play it, uh, I might enjoy it a little bit more. And as for the book, uh, clear the, clear the bridge. Uh, yeah, I'm also, I'm kind of very slowly going through it amongst other things. And, yeah, the further I get into that book, the more fun it is. Like right now they're they're on patrol and uh they're basically acting as a lifeboat. Now this is this is a accurate historical you know book written by the captain who was there obviously. And so basically what these guys would do in uh I think it's the USS Tang is they're they're acting as a lifeboat. So a kind of uh you know allied bombers would kind of go and do their stuff and then they'd get shot down or other allied planes or torpedo bombers or dive bombers or whatever. They'd get shot down and the submarine would basically hang around in the combat zone and go and pick them up. So now as it stands, they're kind of like gathering this contingent of uh, of pilots and radio, radio men and stuff on their sub. So they actually created a uh, kind of like an air combat information center on the submarine where they have these pilots who are experienced and know the lingo and all that. They're actually coordinating the air attacks from the sub that picked them up because their planes got shot down. So, I mean, it's just that I had no idea that this stuff happened. And uh, it's really cool. And uh, actually, I came across, let me see here. I took a picture of it on my, of it on my phone. Uh, two weekends ago, I was skiing up in uh, Collingwood, Blue Mountain, here near Toronto. And we were staying at a hotel and they had a uh, kind of a lounge where they had all kinds of old books. And one book that I came across, if I can find the picture of it in my phone here. Yes, so I found a very old paperback copy of Wake of the Wahoo by Forrest J. Sterling. And I think, and there's a foreword in this book by Vice Admiral Charles A. Lockwood. And the Wahoo was uh, another submarine in World War II. And I think this was kind of like a similar idea of a novel of uh, then, then Clear the Bridge. Now I haven't, I didn't read it. It was based, I looked at it, I opened it and half the pages fell out because it was a very old hardcover or a paperback, I think from the seventies. So uh, I, I don't have any 
reference as to whether or not it's good. But if you like to clear the bridge, you might want to check out uh, in the wake of the Wahoo. And actually, the Wahoo comes up because it's the uh, it's the sh- it's the the sub, the boat, if you will, that the captain of the Tang from Clear the Bridge uh, served on before he got command of the Tang. So that's kind of how I I picked up on that. So uh, lots of cool submarine books. Hey, who knew? All right. So next, when it comes to email, we have one from longtime listener and friend of the show, Father Beast. And he writes, Joe, after listening to your recent Hangout episode, I thought you might enjoy this story. My wife and I were late to the world of PC computing. We had a Commodore 64 for way after Commodore itself went out of business. But then in 1996, we bought an 8086 computer at a garage sale for $18. I think it was an IBM PC XT, but uh, I'm not sure. It had one megabyte of RAM, a low density 360K, five and a quarter inch floppy drive, and it came with a CGA monitor. I took this thing to my brother, who's a real computer geek. I mean, seriously, he has a job maintaining the networks of uh, for the local plants of a national packaging company. And uh, he fixed me up with a 20 meg hard drive that he had sitting around somewhere. Uh, And he went someplace on the internet and downloaded a bunch of shareware that uh, should work on that particular machine. I took all this home and uh, then had to return it to my brother because it turned out the computer wasn't advanced enough to run PK unzip. So that was my first computer, onto my first DOS game. Uh, one of those was a bit of shareware called Fairy Godmom. All of us had an unreasonable amount of fun with that game, which uh, was sort of load runner like with uh, a fun mechanic where you would press one button to scan something into your wand and then press the other button to transform things. I think I still have a copy of that game installed to my Windows 98 computer, Father Beast. Well, thank you, Father Beast. And you know, when you write in, it's always very interesting. And you in particular, because I, you always kind of refer to the ways that you got your hands on things. And, uh, you know, I know you say, oh, you picked up some games at a thrift shop or at a flea market or this or that. And this I love. You got your first IBM PC for 18 bucks from a garage sale. And, uh, yeah, like I said, I just, I just love the way people come across different things. Like for me, I know a lot of shareware games. We had this computer store near us called Club Biz that uh, a guy worked at that we knew from uh, from one of the local Montreal BBSs. And, uh, you know, we'd go there and we'd buy a whole bunch of games for like three bucks because basically with Shareware, you were just paying for the disc. And, uh, you know, we got a lot of stuff that way. I know a lot of people reference the, uh, you know, PC, was it PC Gaming or PC Gamer or PC World uh, or Computer Gaming World. I can't remember the name of the magazine. The uh, pack-in demo CD that had a whole whack of stuff on it. So yeah, really cool to see how people come across things. And thanks for that story at first. I liked the uh, I liked that concept that we talked about our firsts on the first episode of uh, of the Hangout, and a lot of really cool uh, stuff came out of that. So finally, for uh, our, our pre-show kind of non-specific emails, we have a message from Julian, and Julian writes, "Hi Joe, I hope you're doing well." I'm really enjoying the show as ever. Uh, I wondered whether you might consider covering the late 90s game Blade Runner at some point. Best wishes, Julian. Well, Julian, absolutely, yes, I will cover Blade Runner. Uh, I, I'm i a big fan of, of Blade Runner, the movie, and the world that it's in and and all that. And I definitely, I had the game, and actually I stood... I I <laughs> I hate telling the story because it makes me sad. So, you know, about, a, let's say a few months, maybe even just a few weeks before I decided that I was starting this podcast. My parents were moving out of their house into a condo and, you know, it was kind of, I was tasked with going through all my old stuff that I I had left there after I moved out 
and, uh, you know, either taking it with me or, or chucking it out. And I had a big pile of, of DOS, you know, boxed games in, in pretty good condition. Most of them were actually in, in very good condition, you know, still had everything in the boxes and the discs and the CDs and the manuals and the registration cards and the, you know, all that, all that stuff. And, uh, and I turfed them, chucked them all out. And, uh, there's only a few remains of that collection. And one of them is, is actually the, uh, the multi CD jewel case with the CDs inside for Blade Runner. I don't have the box anymore, but I still have the discs. So, uh, it's definitely on my list to cover because I do have fond memories of that game. I know Jim Walls worked on it and, uh, you know, there's some interesting aspects of it. So uh, I'll, I'll definitely be covering it on the show one of these days. And if you ever see me, you can, uh, you can hit me and tell me that I was an idiot for throwing out all my awesome DOS games. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Okay, so here we are discussing another long overdue game, Wing Commander Privateer. Now, Privateer is sort of a sub-series of two games which exist within the larger Wing Commander universe. Uh, Both entries were designed by Origin Systems and published by Electronic Arts. The first game, Privateer, released in the year 1993. And if you were around in the year 1993 and you were paying attention to the video games industry and weird little promos that they may have put out, you may have heard this. Origin presents Privateer, a next-generation space combat simulator for the IBM platform. You will move through an intensely cinematic universe, experiencing the two very different thrills of clinching a hard bargain and real-time 3D space combat. Make your own alliances and choose the life of a pirate, a mercenary, or a merchant. Customize your ship. Modify your weapons, armament, and systems. Explore a complete universe with more than 50 bases and planets in almost 70 systems. Well, that basically explained everything, so I guess the show's over, right? No, just kidding. Let's talk genre like we, uh, like we usually do. So, this isn't the first time we've, uh, we've visited the Wing Commander universe, and, well, this game does differ in some major ways from... Uh, the first two Wing Commander games that I discussed way back in episode number two. It is the same as them in one major way, and that is at least part of the genre. The Privateer is primarily, and you guys can argue with me about this, but I will contend that it is primarily a space combat simulator. Now, in a space combat simulator, you're generally placed in command of a single spacecraft, and uh, you're tasked with completing any given number or any given series of missions. Uh, These missions can contain objectives like search and destroy, patrol, escort, and any other military-style objective that you can think of. Now, on top of being a space combat simulator, Privateer also brings in strong elements of a space trading game. So where the space combat elements of the game mirror gameplay of more contemporary things like flight simulators, you know, where you're flying aircraft that we would know today in an atmosphere and things like that, just in space. Uh, just the trading aspect of the game acts more like kind of a high seas trading simulation. You as the player are, how should we put it? Um, an independent business person, ferry and cargo from one planetary port to another hoping to buy low and to sell high to turn a profit. Now, money is used to continue the buying and selling cycle 
you know, the more money you get, the more stuff you can buy, the more, the better stuff you can buy and the bigger your profit margins can be. And on top of that, um, you know, you'll also use this money to upgrade your ship, you know, things like weapons, storage uh, capacity, and other equipment. Most space trading games also offer a variety of ship types for purchase, each of which has its own main uses, main advantages, and uh, disadvantages. Uh, space trading games tend to be open world, though, as we'll see, uh, this doesn't necessarily mean that they lack a story. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So, like I said, it's not necessary that a space trading game lacks a story, and this one does not. Hey, it's a Chris Roberts game, and I don't think Chris Roberts would allow himself to make a game that didn't have a story. So, if you go back all the way to episode two, I apologize for the way it sounds if you do, uh, in that episode, I discuss the Wing Commander universe and the history of it in much more detail. For the purposes of Privateer, though, all we really need to know is this. It is the 25th century, and the Terran Confederation and the Kilrathi Empire have been at war for over 30 years. While this is important to the universe and to the setting, frankly, it's not really even that important to us. You are a Terran privateer. Now, while in the game, you can name yourself anything, as in all Wing Commander games prior to uh, Wing Commander 3, it turns out that uh, your character, your brown-haired dude in the game, does actually have an official name, and his name is Grayson Burroughs. Now, Grayson is a talented pilot and is just getting started in the privateering game. He's the captain of an old Tarsus-class transport ship. Now, the Tarsus is an old, out-of-production explorer vessel, which has become a mainstay with budget-minded independent business people like yourself. Now, Grayson's particular ship was an inheritance from his grandfather, who I can only assume has uh, since passed away. So we find ourselves in the Gemini sector, an area of space just to the solar north of uh, Earth's solar system. And uh, it's also right on the border with the Kilrathi Empire. As I said, the war is about 30 years old at this point. Uh, and in the Wing Commander timeline, uh, you know, we're looking at things kind of just before the start of Wing Commander 3. So kind of a little ways after the end of Wing Commander 2, just before the start of Wing Commander 3. Now, Gemini is the frontier. It's the fringes of the Confederation. It's the Wild West. You know, there's authorities, they're there, but the war is far away and people here generally have to fend for themselves. So this is where we find ourselves in the game's intro. We're on a simple cargo run, flying through an asteroid field, and we run into pirates who, as usual, want what we have and aren't scared to use force to take it from us. Well, Grayson, who's in command, isn't having any of this. What is it, huh? Is it a smuggler far off the normal space lanes? Maybe a bad smuggler with some nice contraband. <laughs> Sorry, boys. I'm just a tourist with a frag nav console. Could you tell me where I am? Deep in trouble, little tourist. Prepare to be boarded. Not a chance, pal. Prepare to go to hell.
Why so good? Are you insane? No, it's just got a load of cargo in the hold and a load of bills to pay at home. And I the same. You shouldn't kill me just for attacking you. I don't mind that you tried to kill me, but protecting myself against your type gets expensive, and I'm on a budget. I love the uh, the voice acting on that uh, on the pirate guy, right, 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 little tourist. It's uh, <laughs> it's pretty good. Anyways, as you heard there, the pirates are quickly dispatched, and uh, as Grayson flies away to safety, uh, one of his stray missiles cruises off into the asteroid field and impacts on what looks like just another floating piece of space rock. Well. It turns out that whatever that thing was, it is not a piece of rock. <laughs> the rock, quote-unquote, uh, begins to emit a green glow and then suddenly takes off under its own power. What is it? Where is it going? Why was it floating there in the first place? We do not know. Okay, let's talk gameplay. This is where we begin. Uh, we catch up with Grayson, or whatever we decided to name him. I usually call my dude Billy, because that's my nickname. Um, and, you know, he's docked. We, from now on, I will refer to him as we, <laughs> the royal we. Uh, we're docked at a mining station in the Troy system. Now, Troy is in the Humboldt quadrant, one of the quieter and more sparsely populated of the four quadrants in the Gemini sector. Now, Troy is unique in that it offers a trade route back to the Soul system and to Earth itself, though that doesn't factor into, uh, into this game at all. So as we start off, we can basically do whatever we want. Though the things we can actually do right now are a bit limited by a couple of things, the primary one of which being uh, we don't have very much money and we don't have very good equipment. So we're looking at our old Tarsus sitting on the landing pad, so I guess the best thing to do is probably to enter the station and, you know, see what there is to see. Most stations contain the same set of locations, you know, give or take. They'll all have a bar. Now, much like in Sid Meier's Pirates, like I said, this is a lot like a high seas trading game. Uh, you can chat with the, the bartender for some general information about the world and some vague kind of trading and in-universe kind of gameplay tips. Now, beside the bartender is a table. Right now it's empty, and it's going to be empty for a little while, but uh, people will occasionally sit here and interact with you, either uh, pushing the game's story forward or offering you missions of a more clandestine nature. For the first little while, though, we're going to get our missions and our, our stuff to do from somewhere else. And that somewhere else, at least for right now, is the mission computer. Now, the mission computer is located on the concourse of every station. There isn't a station that doesn't have one of these. It serves as a bulletin board where pilots can scroll through a list of available missions and, you know, take them on. These are general purpose missions for various organizations around the uh, Gemini sector, but uh, they usually fall into a few categories. Things like patrol, defense and interdiction, bounty hunting, attack, and, uh, you know, cargo, cargo running. Now, each mission will list uh, its category. You know, is it an attack mission? Is it a cargo mission? Blah, blah, blah. It'll list a series of objectives. It'll list uh, a location, and it'll list a reward. So since our starter ship lacks a jump drive, which I, when I was playing through uh, for, for the show, 
was reminded of the hard way by uh, <laughs> choosing a mission I couldn't do. Um, you know, basically most of the cargo missions right now, we can't do them because we can't leave the system. Uh, we need to stay local. So, you know, a base defense mission or a patrol mission right here in the Troy system should fit the bill pretty nicely. So we scroll through, we choose one, now we've got a mission. Uh, we've also got a ship. So you know what, let's hop to it. There's other stuff to worry about, but hey, we want to play the game, right? Uh, so exiting the concourse, you return to the landing pad and you launch into the stars. Into the black, if you will. Once in space, you'll be pretty familiar with uh, with the basic gameplay if you've played Wing Commander 1 and 2. I mean, this is an Origin FX game. It runs on the same game engine as the other two Wing Commander games that came before it. So, um, you know, it's all pretty familiar. The first thing you'll notice, though, is that unlike the hot rod fighters of the previous games where you were, you know, a military pilot flying the latest and greatest, your old Tarsus is a bit of a pig. Not only is it a bit of a pig, it's a very weakly armed and very weakly armored pig. You know, to start off, you have light armor, you have weak shields, you have 10 dumb fire missiles, and you have a single laser cannon. Well, let's hope that the mission you choose doesn't contain a lot of fighting because it might be a tad challenging. So here's the cool thing about Privateer. Unlike previous games where each mission placed you on a unique map with a tailored set of jump points and a very specific objective, here we can basically go where we choose and we can do what we want. Each system, so in this case the Troy system, will have a fixed set of nav points some of which exist purely as navigational references, there's nothing at them. Others host planets, some host space stations, and yet others contain jump points to neighboring systems. So pressing N brings up the navigation screen, which by default displays the map of the current system. Pressing the nav slash miss button pops up your selected mission objectives. Relevant nav points are also marked in red on the uh, nav map. So you fly around and you complete your objective. Um, the moment they're done, payment is processed to your account. Huzzah! You've got money! Maybe it's not much, but it's better than what you had. Now, with your newfound income, you can return to either of the mining stations in the system and visit my favorite place, the ship dealer. Now, the reason I'm specific about the mining stations is the Troy system has three stations, two mining stations and an agricultural station, which is on a planet. The agricultural planet does not have a ship dealer. Now, I can't remember off the top of my head if all agricultural planets lack a ship dealer, but the one in the Troy system absolutely does. So, either one of the mining stations, go visit my favorite guy, the ship dealer. <laughs> Strangely, the guy that works in one ship dealer works in all the ship dealers. So, it's the same dude that sells you the ships, the, all your ships across the entire galaxy. Either he's got a whole whack of twins or uh, they tried to save a little bit of money on art assets. So here at the ship dealer, uh, you can purchase completely new ships or you can upgrade your existing vessel. Now, to me, this is the most entertaining part of the game. Uh, starting out, because I have limited money, I usually have two priorities. First, you really badly need to upgrade your laser pop gun. Now, your Tarsus has place for two cannons. So you can either keep your existing laser and add something else like a mass driver or a messin blaster uh, if, you, uh, if you have the money for it or you can sell the laser and mount a single bigger gun. Now you can't go too hog wild because uh, you're gonna have to balance the power consumption of your gun with uh, your available engine power. Your engine not only makes you go, but it also powers your other systems such as your guns, your shields, and your afterburners. 
Now, afterburners are my second priority. You know, the, again, if you've played earlier Wing Commander games or even later Wing Commander games, you know that afterburners allow you both to get out of a sticky situation quickly and also make you generally more effective in combat. You know, a little burst of speed every now and then is going to help you line up on targets. It's going to help you get away. All kinds of stuff like that. When you start out, you don't have any afterburners at all and you feel it right off the bat. Everything is harder. Now, there's a wide variety of other ship upgrades, including a nice big assortment of uh, guns of various you know, types of various power, of various uh, ability. There's also types of missiles. Generally, uh, the difference in missiles is the way they acquire targets and how good they are at tracking. Uh, you've got torpedoes, which allow you to attack capital ships, and uh, you also have to buy an associated torpedo launcher or even an associated missile launcher if you want more than the one you've already got. Uh, there's tractor beams to pull in cargo from space, cargo expansions to increase your carrying capacity, shield generators, armor and engine upgrades, electronic countermeasures, a repair bot, and of course, your jump drive, which will allow you to leave the Troy system and encounter the, <laughs> or experience, shall we say, the, the greater Gemini sector. Though to do that, you have to go to another part of the ship dealer, which is kind of the, uh, the computer bay, where you can buy different scanners, and you can also buy uh, maps of the different quadrants in the Gemini sector. So as you keep running missions, uh, you'll eventually figure out what type of spacer you are. Are you a trader, plying the space lanes for an honest buck? Are you a mercenary, looking for action? Are you a pirate, attacking ships for their cargo? Or are you a smuggler, running illegal contraband for big payouts? Now, depending on which way you go, there's three other ships for you. First, there's the Orion. The Orion is the workhorse of the bunch. It's slow but it can be upgraded to be the most heavily shielded and armored vessel in the game. It's a good jack-of-all-trades uh, ship. It even mounts a rear turret, you know, to help, uh, because it's not quite as maneuverable, to help get uh, bad guys off your butt. Next, you have the Galaxy. Now, the Galaxy is the trader's ship. It's slow, but it has a large cargo capacity to maximize profit on trading runs, and, uh, you know, to make up for its lack of maneuverability... It mounts a good amount of forward weaponry in addition to rear and side turrets. Finally, for the more mercenary lifestyle, there's the Centurion. Now it has a little bit of cargo space, as they say in the manual, enough for an overnight bag, but not much more than that. Uh, but it works very well as a long-range heavy fighter. Uh, you know, lots of firepower and good speed make this ship ideal for those attack and bounty hunting missions. It's also the most expensive of the lot. Now, sadly, you can only own one ship at a time, so, you know, it's a pretty big investment, so be sure you buy the one that fits your style. Also, as you choose your path uh, through the game, there's other options for getting missions and making money. Firstly, there's the pure trading route. Each station and planet in the game, except well, one or two of them, Actually, no, I think every single one does. There was one I was thinking of, but I, I don't think that that's a problem. Uh, each station and planet in the game has what is known as a commodity exchange. Here you can buy and sell a variety of goods. Uh, you know, what's available will depend on where you're docked. An agricultural planet would sell food and other organics. Well, they would want things like machinery and other high-tech items. Refineries would appreciate ore from mining colonies, and mining colonies would enjoy entertainment items from pleasure planets. Pleasure planets need food from agriculture. It's, you know, it's, it's the wonderful cycle of commerce. 
So as you na navigate across the systems and quadrants in the Gemini sector, uh, you can set up some fairly lucrative trade routes. You know, once you kind of figure out who's paying for what, and uh, you know, you can even look these things up online and all that. But if this is the way you want to play, you certainly are free to do that. Now, aside from trading, there's also the Merchant's Guild. Uh, for an entrance fee of 1,000 credits, you get the opportunity to run slightly more lucrative missions than you get from the mission computer on behalf of the Merchant's Guild. On the other hand, if, again, you're a little more uh, action-oriented, there's the Mercenaries Guild, which offers more combat-oriented missions for a one-time fee of 5,000 credits. Now, all these missions are randomly generated and pit you against various factions in uh, in Gemini. There's the quasi-religious retros, there's pirates, uh, there's even the Kilrathi, because, you know, we're, we're on the border with them. And there's also the occasional bounty hunter that uh, that will get in your way. And, uh, you know, a lot of these guys, except for the bounty hunters probably, because they don't always fight, but uh, a lot of these guys will just attack you on sight. You know, other merchants, the local militia, and uh, the Confederation Navy will generally leave you alone unless you're doing something wrong or if, uh, you know, you're, uh, you're actively attacking them. Though, uh, if you do act piratey, enough for long enough eventually the pirates will become your friend and the authorities will fight you on site so there is kind of a faction reputation aspect to the game but it's very loose not official like you know there's really no way to track oh i'm i'm exalted with the pirates or whatever it's just eventually you'll have done enough bad that the pirates will be your friend and uh, the authorities will not so you can basically play the entire game this way Running randomly generated missions, trading, building yourself up, blah, blah, blah. Eventually, though, you do get the opportunity to play through the game's story missions, which revolve around identifying and eventually tracking down the green growing ship from the intro. Uh, the story missions follow a single thread, but they can be played in amongst your open world endeavors. So it's not like once you embark on the story, you're trapped and that's all you can do. You can do one story mission, play the game for two months, and then do another story mission. So one thing I'll say in closing about the gameplay, and I think this is very important, uh, and it's staying on top of ship upgrades is is vital. You know, it seems that Privateer, and I, I've again, I'm just saying this kind of out of out of my out of my head, but it does seem that Privateer either has some kind of hidden timer in it or some other element of random number generation, but it does appear that at a certain point the game's difficulty skyrockets all of a sudden. You know, playing through, I was doing just fine, slowly upgrading my old Tarsus with kind of to what I thought was the minimum amount of upgrades I required uh, while saving up for my next ship. I basically wanted to get out of the Tarsus as soon as possible, maybe into an Orion because I like it a bit better. Uh, and everything was all well and good. Then, all of a sudden, every time I would launch, I'd run into swarms of enemies who would quickly tear me apart. Uh, the only way around this was to reload and try again. And if I was lucky, the swarm of enemies wouldn't be floating there waiting for me, uh, at least until uh, the next mission because of kind of the random random generation of the missions and uh, the enemies that appear on them. So yeah, there's kind of this certain point where the game gets real hard and uh, you got to be ready for it. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for...
Okay, tech focus time. So to run Privateer, you needed the following. At least a 386DX 33MHz with 4 megs of total RAM and at least 570k free under largest executable program size when you typed mem in DOS. Now, I've said it before, and I will say it again. Largest executable program size was the bane of my existence when I was a kid. It was frustrating then. Very, very frustrating. You know, maybe I had 568k free. Couldn't play the game. But I have said it before, you know, getting these games to work, especially this aspect of getting these games to work, really taught me about the guts and the inner workings of computers and, you know, how system hardware worked, how it interacted with software. It taught me what I really needed to make my machine work and what every single thing that was loaded into memory did and where the best place for it was. You know, that attentioning, that attention to what is happening on a machine persists today. It comes in handy at work when one of my servers is doing something funky. You know, I go in and I can track down what's going on. I had, it's just, it, it, it's this thing that over years you develop this, this skill set. And I'm not saying I'm better than anyone else at it. It's just that by mucking around, by saying, oh, the mouse driver goes better here. I don't need the CD-ROM driver here. I don't need this. I don't need smart drive. You know, it forces you to think of how the computer is working and what things are doing. So now when I'm in a situation where something's going wrong, I have the skill set to, uh, to determine that. And it's not hard to do. It's just something that, you know, as a DOS gamer, I think a lot of us were, uh, were faced with, shall we say. It also helps me a lot when my dad installs some stupid spyware on his computer and I have to go and take it out. <laughs> now, Privateer is the actually i don't think it's the last wing commander game it might be the second to last wing commander game but it's the last kind of big wing commander game to run on the origin fx game engine i think wing commander academy came out but that was kind of just a small uh you know final fantasy tactics style uh game this is the the, the last kind of uh triple a wing commander game to run on the origin fx engine uh so origin fx is the 2d engine that powered both wing commander one and two and uh, displayed 2D sprites in 320 by 200 VGA at 256 colors. Now, originally, Privateer was supposed to be powered by the new Real Space Engine, uh, which was being developed for Strike Commander. Now, as we heard back in episode 27, when I discussed that game, Strike Commander was plagued by delays, uh, so it was decided that Privateer would be built on the older engine. Frankly, I think it was a good move, especially if uh, if Privateer 2 is any indication. Now, the game score was composed by three people, Laura Barrett, Mark Schaefgen, and Nenand Vugrenik. I'm not good at names today, sorry. <laughs> uh, I believe these were all Origin employees at the time. Uh, the music is very, very well done and comes across to me as very appropriate and kind of in-universe, shall we say, with uh, the music of the previous two Wing Commander games. Again, Origin's own, Origin's own iMuse-style event-based music system was here in full force. It wasn't iMuse, it was just part of the Origin FX system. But, uh, you know, a lot of us know what iMuse is, so it's a good it's a good analogy. So, you know, just like in TIE Fighter, which I'm replaying the hell out of right now, uh, when combat begins, the music changes. And this is incredibly helpful with uh, the lower-end sensor systems, because uh, your low-end scanners in the game don't uh, identify between friendlies and enemies everyone's just gray and so when you kind of come out of autopilot 
and the music changes to the combat music, well, you know what? You don't need a good scanner. You just know someone's going to shoot you soon. <laughs> You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... So Privateer was the brainchild of Chris Roberts, uh, the man who we've talked about before who created the Wing Commander franchise. Uh, Expansions aside, Privateer was the third game uh, in the series, though I wouldn't venture, as I said kind of in the beginning, I wouldn't venture to call it a full-on sequel. So Roberts was born in Redwood City, California. While he was still very young, his family moved uh, over to Manchester in the United Kingdom. Uh, As he grew into a teenager, a strong affinity and talent for video game design quickly became apparent in him. Uh, He created some popular games for the BBC Micro uh, before he was 18. And by 1986, he decided that uh, he wanted to make a real career of game development and decided to return to California, the land of his birth. He soon got a job at Origin Systems and began making a name for himself there. Uh, This, of course, led him to pitch his cinematic space combat game, which at the time he was calling Squadron. Squadron would soon transform into Wing Commander, that, uh, you know, the game that we know and I very much love. Uh, Wing Commander 2 soon followed, and while Wing Commander 2 lacked much of the complex branching mission structure that the first game had, It told a much more complex and deep story of wrongful accusations, trust, and treason within the Enigma sector. So with the continued success of the franchise, uh, Chris was sort of at a crossroads. So Wing Commander 2 had come out. It was very successful. Uh, You know, he was on the rise. He was kind of a a star at this point. And, uh, you know, he did want to tell more stories in this universe that he had created. He also, though, wanted to change things up a little bit. So he and origin designer Joel Manners came up with a concept for a game that continued to exist in the Wing Commander universe, but came at things from a slightly different angle. So instead of focusing on the epic conflict between the Confederation and the Kelrathi Empire, they wanted to focus on the fringes. You know, the previous games were very neat and tidy. The good guys were good and the bad guys were bad. Uh, Roberts thought it would be much more interesting to insert some gray as he had started to do with uh, the treason storyline from Wing Commander 2. He wanted to represent people living on the edge, out on the frontier, and uh, to do that, he took a lot of inspiration from Elite, uh, the original space trucking game which came out in 1984. Now, the point was to take the universe that he had already created along with the type of fast-paced space combat action he'd developed in the previous games, and merge it with an elite-style open world where you could effectively do whatever you wanted. You know, if you wanted to trade, if you wanted to pirate, if you wanted to bounty hunt, or whatever else you decided to do, you could do it. And of course, Roberts couldn't put a game out without a story, so the plot missions were added into the design to give the game an overarching start and finish point. Now, as I said, after Wing Commander 2, Roberts had thrown most of his attention to the new Real Space engine and Strike Commander, and thus he couldn't devote much time to Privateer. Uh, You know, kind of before Strike Commander had revved up, he sat down, you know, they'd come up with this idea and this design, 
But uh, his intention, as much as he may have wanted to, was uh, not to spend a ton of time on it. He tasked his brother, Aaron Roberts, with the responsibility of producing the game and a co-producer credit. Now, Aaron was already working at Origin and had done testing and design work on both previous Wing Commander games, so it's not like he just pulled his brother in from the street and said, hey, come work on this game. You know, he was an experienced game designer as well. So Privateer released in the fall of 1993, and, uh, you know, it sold very well. The open-ended gameplay, uh, you know, the freedom, the trading aspects, and the replayability made the game an instant classic and a fan favorite. But our story doesn't end here. So there's technically, and I say this, I say technically, a sequel to Privateer. In 1996, Privateer 2 The Darkening released. Now, this was a full-motion video game that ran on a completely new engine and utilized a completely rebuilt video renderer. They didn't use real space. They didn't use the renderer from Wing Commander 3 and 4. Um, it was a totally new thing. Aaron Roberts had full control of this game, and uh, he wanted to do a grand cinematic take on the Privateer universe. Now, to do this, he created a completely new area of space known as the Tri-System. Uh, you are Lev Aris. Uh, you're being transported in cryosleep aboard a freighter, which, uh, which crashes. Now you awaken and you're taken out of cryo and you have no memory of your life. Uh, after some time in a hospital, you know, recovering with, uh, I guess you could call her a pretty blonde doctor, though that's arguable. <laughs> uh, you must take on the life of a privateer and attempt to regain your lost memory along the way. Now, timeline-wise, contradicting reports exist, but the popular theory is that this game actually takes place about a century after the first Privateer, which is why everything looks and feels so completely different. There's almost no callbacks at all to the established Wing Commander universe. There's no planets we recognize. There's no Kilrathi we recognize. Uh, you know, there's no Kilrathi at all. Uh, really, the only callback is that uh, one class of fighter, the Talon, is referenced in both games. But aside from that, no relation. So one possible reason for this is uh, that reportedly Aaron Roberts had not originally planned for this game to be in the Wing Commander franchise. It was supposed to be a standalone and that the prefix Privateer 2 was added on to the game late in its development cycle, you know, probably for marketing reasons and uh, and all that. Now, oddly, you know, I don't have confirmation on a lot of this stuff, a lot of information, even though there's a lot of interviews about this game and stuff like that. A lot of solid concrete information is pretty scarce. It's pretty sketchy. Now, gameplay wise, Privateer 2 had the same basic principles as uh, the first game. You know, you could trade with many more types of commodities. Um, however, in this game, you don't actually fly cargo ships. You know, there's no galaxy here. Uh, you fly a variety of fighter-sized craft, and, um, you know, for trading, you actually hire and escort cargo vessels of varying sizes and defensive capabilities. Now, the bigger and safer the ship is, the more expensive it is, and the more of a cut it takes out of your profit. Now, Aaron Roberts's logic behind this, this change was that in the original Privateer, it was basically too easy to simply afterburn past a fight to make your delivery. Oh, I got cargo. There's guys here. I'm just going to shoot past them and we're not going to fight. In Privateer 2, you did have the option to run away. However, if you did, you had to consider the fact that you'd likely lose your cargo in the process. So it kind of made running away from a fight a little bit more of a tough decision. Now, the big draw of Privateer 2 really 
was the casting. Now, the full motion video sequences featured an A-list ensemble of actors. Uh, Lev Aris, the main character and your avatar in the game, was portrayed by Clive Owen. Uh, in addition, the cast featured performances from Matilda May, Jürgen Pronchow, uh, John Hurt, and uh, a very big role played by the man, Christopher Walken. Uh, the FMV sequences were even filmed at the fabled Pinewood Studios, where a bunch of great movies, including, I believe, all the James Bond films, were uh, were done. So you think this this is amazing, right? You got this A-list cast, you got a next-gen engine, you got cool gameplay, you know, modifications, improvements, this and that. Well, yeah, sadly. <laughs> despite these grand ideas, despite the Hollywood cast, this game was plagued with issues. Uh, the full motion video was incredibly dark and hard to see. And I, I, I contend that the main reason for that is due to uh, it, video interlacing that you could not switch off. Uh, now, interlacing, I don't think is something I've talked about very much. So interlacing in full motion video games was, uh, was a technique used to take some of the strain off of old machines that couldn't quite handle rendering, uh, rendering FMV on the fly. As I understand it, and I may be wrong, I know there's a lot of you technical guys that are listening, so feel free to correct me. But um, the way it works is that a grid of solid lines, be they black or gray or, or whatever, uh, grid of solid lines is rendered on the screen, kind of in alternating lines, and the video is actually rendered on the lines that do not have the solid lines on them. So say, you know, every odd line on the screen has a solid, say, black line on it, and every even line has the video rendering. This means the computer is only displaying half the lines of video, which would, of course, take half the processing power. It might even take less than half the processing power, depending on, you know, how things are running. Uh, it also tricked our eyes into thinking the video was higher resolution than it actually was. Now, the problem with this, at least in Privateer 2, because, you know, the other, I think Wing Commander 3 and 4 did this as well, but I think the default kind of light level gamma lighting, however you want to put it, on the video in this game was already pretty dark, and the interlacing made it even darker to the point where I haven't squinted so much trying to see what was going on in, uh, in a very long time. Uh, on top of the poor video quality... The sets were very cheaply constructed, and the cinematography and the writing were just both pretty poor in general. But, you know, at least there's a good space sim in here, right? Well, again, not so much. Uh, you know, the gameplay of Privateer 2 was, was severely lacking when compared to the original. I mean, the navigation system was highly simplified. Space combat felt kind of real strange. Uh, you know, ships were very elasticy and bumper car-like. Uh, you know, when they collide with each other, they'd both take off in different directions and you wouldn't actually take damage. Um, add to that a buggy and slow flight engine. I mean, there's one mission where I was escorting a, escorting a ship. And, uh, you know, the game, when the ship would, when I'd get close to it and it would come into view, the game would just chug to a halt. You know, when a ship like that or when a planet would come into view, it's just, it, it didn't make sense. And finally, I mean, there were just some really odd quality of life decisions made in the game. For example, when, when you're approaching a planet. So let's say in, in private, in the first privateer, you know, you approach a station or a planet. You come out, you're 
X number of meters out, you know, X number of kilometers out, and you close on it in about 20 seconds and you can land. In Privateer 2, when you come out of jump, because there's no autopilot, you just jump from place to place, you're like on the other end of the solar system from where you're trying to go, and it takes like half an hour. Sorry, not half an hour. Maybe it takes like, you know, a good two to five minutes to approach a planet to request landing permission and to land on the planet. And this happens every time you want to go and land on a planet or a station, which is the main point of the game. Uh, suffice it to say that despite Aaron Roberts' best intentions and what I'm sure was a massive budget, Privateer 2 did not fare well in reviews, nor did it fare very well in sales. You're listening to the so those are the two games in kind of the privateer series itself. So, but you know, where do we find ourselves today? You know, what do we have to look forward to in the privateer universe? Well, in the universe itself, not so much, but you know, Chris Roberts would go on to create other games in the same vein as privateer, such as uh, freelancer. And now freelancer is probably a game, you know, that, that I may visit on the show, but uh, just overall freelancer is a solid game. Uh, you know, the problem with Freelancer is that Chris Roberts had done what he started to do with Strike Commander. He had overpromised and hyped a huge dynamic world, which, uh, which ended up not being delivered in the final game. And so despite being a pretty good space trading game on its own, it suffered in the reviews because, you know, they had shown, oh, there's this big dynamic universe. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be persistent. You're going to do all this stuff. Didn't have it. Suffered in reviews. And now, over the past, you know, year or two, we find ourselves in a similar boat. Star Citizen has been announced. Star Citizen is in development. It's a beautiful looking game that's still in alpha development, which promises a huge privateer style world with persistent multiplayer, a real economy, space combat. On top of that, it's going to have a single player wing commander like experience called Squadron 42. Uh, it's going to have a space trading component. It's going to have a first person shooter. Will it be everything that Roberts is promising? Well, I hope so, but his track record since Strike Commander doesn't really leave me feeling very confident. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Uh, you know, I'm really loving Elite Dangerous, which is obviously in the same vein as this. But, um, you know, I'm, I know a new version of uh, the Star Citizen dogfighting module just came out. I've, I've watched some video of people playing it. It looks beautiful. It looks really fast-paced. It looks great. I'm going to play it myself. Actually, maybe even after I record this show and, you know, see see what there is to see. But can he deliver all this stuff? I just don't know. Okay, so where can we grab, you know, all that aside, sorry, I went off on a little, uh, I got a little emotional there. Uh, <laughs> where can we get Privateer today? Well, this one's good, and it's actually from a few places. Uh, you can grab both Privateer 1 and Privateer 2, should you want to, from GOG.com, and I I gotta double check my settings on GOG. I think I might be set to Canadian. I don't know if they've done that yet or not. But on GOG for me, it says they're five ninety nine each. Now that might be five ninety nine Canadian, and they're four ninety nine US. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but you know, five six bucks per game. It's pretty standard GOG pricing. And uh, the first game only. Now, now this this says something. The first game, Privateer is available on Origin, because it's an EA game, for $4.99. Privateer 2 is not available 
on EA's own <laughs> uh, e-commerce platform. That that definitely says something to me. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. All right, before we get to my verdict, as usual, we've got a couple of emails about Privateer. First one comes from Jay Allen. He writes, I love Privateer. Of all the Wing Commander games, Privateer was the biggest time sink. There were countless times I survived a battle by only a thread, only to jump out and slowly hobble back to a base, hoping they didn't have any pirate activity to drive the final nail in my coffin with mass drivers. The sector of space open to explore was massive, but not so huge you couldn't explore at all. My friend's father created a good map in a CAD program that I believe uh, became well circulated on BBSs later on. In early missions, I would run cargo until getting some basic upgrades. Then I would start taking mercenary missions until I had the ship ready to start creeping further out of, tr- of the Troy system and into the main storyline. I, I kept flying the same Tarsus, upgrading the shields and armor along the way until I could afford the Centurion without wasting money on the ships in between. The views out of the cockpit reduced the screen size so it was difficult to tell where your enemy was. Some ships had very limited views, and uh, the virtual HUD of later games was uh, a welcome improvement. Escort missions over several systems were very difficult, but somehow I managed to get them there after reloading my save files several times. Hidden pirate bases, rumors from barkeeps, uh, there were tons to discover, alliances to be made and broken, Privateer had a fantastic open world waiting to be discovered. Obtaining the Steltic gun and defeating the alien egg ship, which came after you, was very difficult. I was very disappointed you didn't get the gun back after it was stolen at the beginning of Righteous Fire. Uh, it would have probably made the game too easy, however. By the time Privateer 2 came out in 1996, I was selling software at Best Buy. Ten rows of software, one of those was Mac. Uh, the same store had has about one quarter of one row today. I was so excited about the update graphics, video storyline, and other Wing Command and other upgrades uh, Wing Commander 3 and 4 had. Then, at long last, it was released and was such a disappointment. My most basic of strategies, such as jumping out under fire, was useless. The map, now in some 3D form as to be more realistic, was actually just incomprehensible. I didn't have good access to information or internet to find out what had went so wrong with it until years later. In more recent years, I tried messing around with Gemini Gold and uh, tried re-experiencing one of the treasures of my youth, only to find the graphics didn't hold up very well. Only Descent Free Space and Free Space 2 came to all, came also close to being a, a great space sim to me. I did not make time for Star Lancer or Freelancer. I do hope Star Citizen lives up to the hype, but I doubt I'll ever have the same amount of time to play it like I played Wing Commander before entering the workforce. Thank you kindly, Jay Allen. Well, thank you, and and yeah, I mean, it's just, it's the same with me, you know. I didn't play the games kind of, I don't know if I didn't play Starlancer or Freelancer and stuff because Privateer 2 turned me off because Privateer 2, <laughs> I'm going to talk about this in, in, in my verdict, but I'm going to put it this way. You know, I was very forgiving of games when I was young. I'm still actually pretty forgiving of games now, but, uh, you know, I do remember being very frustrated with Privateer 2 and, uh, that does seem to be, uh, the general general consensus but uh yeah you know i'm actually glad you brought up righteous fire that's the expansion for uh for the first game which which increases the uh which kind of carries on the story 
a little bit more and, uh, you know, offers some different options and some more stuff to do. Um, and also the uh, Gemini gold. So I think uh, privateer Gemini gold is actually, I can't remember. I think it's a, not necessarily a source port, but it's a slightly more modern remake of, uh, of privateer that ran on modern systems, which, uh, which was a way to go about playing it before, uh, before you could get it on GOG. So thank you. That's a great email. Uh, next we have an email from Ryan and Ryan writes, Hey Joe, I just wanted to drop you a quick note about privateer. I can only think of one personal anecdote to share about it, which is strange since I recall spending countless hours in the universe and absolutely loving the game. For the longest time, I thought the game had no story. When I first started playing, I must have ignored everything the game did to suggest where to go. I would just fly around doing the generic random missions and trading commodities, and I loved it. But one day I remember landing on a planet and talking to a guy to get a mission. His mission felt somehow different from the uh, countless others I had to run, and uh, I had stumbled on the main story. When that happened, and I realized there was a deeper element to the game, I was blown away. I was already an incredible ga- it was already an incredible game without a story, but having one took it to a whole new level. On the other hand, there was Privateer 2. I never got into it, I'm not sure why. Maybe because the universe was entirely different than uh, the Wing Commander universe I was expecting. Maybe it was the FMV clips that didn't click with me, or maybe the overall gameplay just wasn't there. Whatever the case, it was disappointing to me. Now, it's been fun to watch Chris Roberts fine-tune his open-world formula established with Privateer. It was followed by Freelancer, which, even after having a plethora of features cut from the final release, still managed to be a great open-world game. I'm definitely hopeful for Star Citizen. As you said previously, it feels like he's promising us too much, but how amazing will it be if he actually pulls it off? Keep up the good work. Ryan. Well, thanks, Ryan, and I can't help but agree with you on all points. You know, Privateer 2 was definitely missing stuff, and uh, and and I really do hope to God that Star Citizen pays off, because it could be, it does have the, the you know, it, it could be the greatest space sim open world trading contraption in the history of the world. So, hey, who knows? Now, finally, we got another voicemail from Amirat Akago, and uh, take it away, sir. Yo, Joe! This is Amirat Akago, once again here to share some tales relevant to your interests. Love the show on Strife, and thanks for your comments on my last voicemail as always. Glad it could help shed some more light on things. And as I said before, very happy to have been part of the recent Hangout as well. Now, as for Privateer, that's something of a touchy subject for me. I'll try to explain as best I can, just... Be aware that I might get a bit irate while telling this story. So, I actually played the game for the very first time last year. I'd never touched any Wing Commander games before this, yeah, heresy, I know. But everyone and their grandmothers were praising this game up to the high heavens, so I knew I had to try it sooner or later. And since I had happened to pick it up sometime during a GOG.com sale, I figured I could do a lot worse and start here. But right from the beginning, I had quite a bit of trouble getting into this game, since I had to figure out how things worked and how the game controlled and all that good business, so I spent a fair amount of time intently studying the 63-page manual that came with it. But once I got a grip on it, I was having a pretty decent time just flying some missions and making some cash, enjoying the scenery and the sweet ad-lib tunes. And then the freaking pirates happened! Pirates and retros! Oh my god! I swear, every time I tried to go anywhere outside of the starting area, I got blown to pieces. Wanted to go on a cargo run? Pirates. Wanted to test out the new jump drive I bought? Retros. Wanted to try doing a story mission? Pirates and retros! So right away, the game's refusing to let me make any kind of significant progress until I upgrade my ship. Fair enough, I say. 
So I grind some cash and deck myself out with the best armaments and defenses that my humble little Tarsus can carry. Still get blown up at every turn. I mean, yeah, sure, I can just spam guided missiles every time I get ambushed, but those things don't exactly come cheap. And they're not guaranteed to work anyway, and all the while my ship still gets shot at from every direction. Crippling shields, thrusters and the like. So even if I live through it, I'm still limping my way back to the nearest station. And that's assuming they even have a goddamn ship dealer! So after a while of getting absolutely nowhere, I'm like... Okay, game. You wanna play it like this? Fine by me, motherfucker. So I stay put exactly where I am and fly dozens upon dozens of simple missions in the starting area to grind enough cash to get myself a Centurion. Incidentally, it boggles my mind why the ship prices aren't listed anywhere. Not in the game, not in the manual, not even the freaking hint book. You know why I did eventually find them? The quick reference card of all places. Eh. <sighs> anyway, so I eventually grind up the 200,000 credits necessary for the ship, cough it up, and outfit it with every little gizmo I ever wanted. Level 3 engine, level 3 shields, afterburner, 4 tachyon cannons, 2 missile launchers with 20 IR missiles, repair droid, after tractor beam, kitchen sink, the works. You know what happened then? The game got stupidly easy. Absolutely everything in my way died, one way or another. Sure, I might have gotten scratched up a bit from time to time, but I was never short on cash to repair it with. But now that I had everything I ever needed, I had a different problem. There wasn't really anything left for me to do at this point, because anything I could do only earned me more money, and there was nothing left for me to spend it on other than the occasional repairs, refuels, and restocking missiles. Sure, I followed the story missions to their logical conclusion, with some difficulty, but I won't get into that, but after that I was pretty much done with the game entirely. So yeah, in the end, I was kind of disappointed by the game, but I can't really say I didn't have fun with it. It definitely had a nice level of immersion and freedom, with how you can go anywhere and do anything you want, and have such extensive control over your ship and all that. And I can certainly still appreciate how ambitious it was for its time, but there was a serious lack of depth or any kind of difficulty curve to it which kind of spoiled the experience for me. I don't know, maybe I just suck at it. But nevertheless, I do want to check out some other games like that that have since come out, like Freelancer, the X-Series, or the more recent Elite Dangerous, that may have maybe advanced the same concept a bit further. So, if nothing else, playing Privateer at least got me interested in that kind of stuff. Anyway, I'm done ranting for now, so Joe, keep being awesome as always, and remember to let me know if you had trouble in my quad. Well, thanks, Emiriet, and uh, yeah, you know, again, total agreement, uh, and, and actually it's nice, because yeah, this time through I didn't obviously have the time to, you know, grind all the cash to get all the best stuff and, and, and this and that, so it's interesting to know, so yes, there's a huge, you know, a, a, a huge kind of uh, gradient, shall we say, of... Uh, of difficulty, but then once you get all the best stuff, the game becomes real easy. So it's kind of like, you know, I'm sure the intention is for you to kind of grind up a bit of cash, get an Orion, and you know, do the stuff with the Orion, and then you know, maybe get a Galaxy or don't get a Galaxy, depending if you want to. Actually, I think that's that's something I need to look into. Is that you know, is the game, the story part of the story missions at least story part of the game, is it doable without a Centurion? That's all maxed out like can you do it with a galaxy that's all maxed out or uh, an orion that's all maxed out i think that'd be interesting to see because usually people basically just play the game grind up to a centurion and then do what they have to do but uh you know i know there's other people that like the the trading aspect so can you get through the story with uh without the the fighter i think that'd be pretty cool to figure out so anyways thanks for that great great uh great comments again thanks for hanging out thank you for hanging out with me uh last time and uh 
Keep on sending your voicemails. I really, really, really enjoy them. So, does Privateer hold up today? Well, for me, and I think you might, you probably already know what I'm going to say, but for me, the first game absolutely does. Now, as I mentioned, and as I've, you know, as a lot of the emailers have mentioned, as I've mentioned a few times, you have to keep in mind the seemingly rand randomly increasing difficulty scale. But aside from that, and if you're willing to accept that, the game is tons of fun. Now, you know, I'm an unabashed space sim fan. You know, I love X-Wing. I love Wing Commander. I love modern space sims. I haven't played the original Elite, but I'm like playing the crap out of TIE Fighter and Elite Dangerous right now. Uh, what's that other one that I've reviewed already? What's it called? Uh, Independence War. You know, I love space sims. I'm a big Star Wars fan. I'm a big Star Trek fan. I love space. I love flying spaceships. I'm a fan. But the combination of presentation, of story, and of open world really does make Privateer special. Now, I love building up my ship. I love jumping around the Wing Commander universe and generally making a name for myself. There's just something about it that's, that's really satisfying. You know, graphically, and maybe again, this is because I grew up with this stuff, but I think the 2D graphics hold up just fine. The voice acting, such as it is, is painfully bad. We heard that in the intro, but it's really not that critical to this game. You know, if you're a fan of space trucking, you know, if you're already tooling around in Elite Dangerous, or if you back Star Citizen and you want to go back and see some of the origins of this genre, I would absolutely check out the first Privateer. As for Privateer 2, and I don't think I'm going to get that much argument on this, I wouldn't touch that thing with a 10-foot pole. I actually played it for about two hours just for the show, just to make sure that my memories of it weren't clouded or whatever. Look, they're not. The video is virtually unwatchable because of the stupid interlacing. The acting is bad, even though these are great actors. The writing is bad. The sets are crappily made. And the worst part, the worst part is that the gameplay sucks. It's bad. It's like you're driving bumper cars in space. You don't know what to do, you don't know where to go, the controls are flaky, and the game is all around just a huge mess. Do not waste your money or your time on Privateer 2. Do not. This is probably the most vehemently I have recommended for you to not play a game. You will be better off in your life if you do not play Privateer 2. But play the first game. It's great. <laughs> you are listening. So that's that for another show. Now, next week, I'm going to be on vacation. I'm going to be skiing out west, hopefully, <laughs> if it's not raining, which it looks like it might be. But anyways, we're not going to get into that. Uh, but, you know, I'm going to have free evenings and I'm going to have my laptop. So I'm going to try and get a new show out for you guys. I didn't get a chance to do the January show, so I want to get a new show out. ASAP. It might not sound as good as usual. I'll probably be on room mic and my iPhone or whatever, but I'm going to do something because I really want to. After that, for the next real show, when I get back from my ski trip, uh, I'm going to hit up LucasArts again with a focus on the game that I've been wanting to cover for a long time, Grim Fandango. I'm doing this in honor of the remastered edition that uh, just released from Double Fine. 
This is one I know everyone has opinions about, and I'm looking really, really forward to covering it. As always, you can send email or audio comments about this or any previous or any future shows to podcast at umbcast.com. Thanks to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find him at uh, rickmoyer.com or moyermultimedia.com. Don't forget that if you enjoy the show, you can become my boss over at patreon.com slash umbcast. Uh, you know, if you find some value from the show, please consider joining, I believe, my 31, wow, current patrons and donating a buck or two to show to help me with costs and, you know, do all kinds of uh, of fun stuff. You know, the new shows are due to the Patreon, the Hangout that we had so much fun on last time is from the Patreon. So, you know, if you want to do more fun stuff like that, if you guys have ideas about uh, other, you know, goal levels of cool things you'd want to do with me or have me do for you, uh, suggest them. We got, you know, I hope things will only keep going up. And, uh, you know, it gives me more opportunity to, uh, to do cool stuff with the show. I'm really happy with all the support you guys have been giving me. It's super humbling and, uh, I'm amazed. I continue to be amazed every day at, uh, at the support. So, Hey, let's keep it rolling. You can check out the show notes at umbcast.com. You can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. You can follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow and me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. You can find the show on YouTube at youtube.com slash umbcast, where I put up videos of my game research sessions. <laughs> I'm happy and sad that I didn't put up my playthrough of Privateer 2, because you'd see me getting angry. Uh, <laughs> you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, stream us live at Stitcher Radio. And that is that, and I will see you next time for Grim Fandango, here in the Upper Memory Block. Battle Control Terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join us.